Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I have with me Jan Fingerland uh, from the Czech Public Radio, and we are going to talk about the psychology of democracy and the psychology of the transition between living in a communist state and transitioning into a democratic state. And uh, before I, I talk further about the subject, I would like to have Jan uh, briefly uh, tell us um, about yourself and give a brief introduction, if you will. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Jan Fingerland. I was born in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia in 1972. So in 1989, I was uh, 17, almost 18 years old. Uh, I spent most of my life here in the Czech Republic. I studied uh, political science mostly, but also I was interested and I have been trying to study many other uh, areas of uh, study such as uh, uh, philosophy or history and of course uh, I am uh, today mostly journalist so this is uh, the main perspective that I have uh, the journalistic perspective yes great and uh, I'm very happy to have you on uh, we've been speaking also outside and great topics about history and I would like to connect the topic to last week's celebration, which was the uh, commemoration of the Velvet Revolution. And for those who don't know, uh, this was a peaceful revolution, which basically overthrew uh, the communist system in Czechoslovakia uh, in 1989. And uh, it was a very remarkable event. You had uh, people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, in terms of uh, student leaders, intellectuals, artists, and even religious leaders uh, who were involved with this. And so, uh, Jan, I want to I want to ask you, uh, since you're you're a little bit outside of, of the field of psychology, but still, I think there are points where we connect and that is uh, very important. So what was it like uh, for you? What were some of the uh, memories that you have from living through uh, living in a totalitarian state? And what was uh, what was remarkable about the transition out of it? I think it is important to stress that uh, I'm a member of a generation. I was born in uh, early 1970s. So my perception is, I think, very different from perception of, for example, my parents' generation, those who were born after 1945 in general. For them, the main event of their life was uh, 1968 in Prague. 1968 was a big thing in the West, not only in the United States, but also in Western Europe. Uh, in uh, my country, 1968 was uh, an event in, uh, let's say, with two faces, because uh, the first, uh, in the first uh, period after, let's say, January 1968, it was uh, an era of uh, liberation from uh, the one type of communist rule it was so-called prague spring a time of great uh, great expectations which ended up only 
eight months later with Soviet invasion. So this was a major uh, experience of my parents' generation. After that, in 1970s, 1980s, they were living under so-called normalization regime, which was very, um, I would say, depressing era. It was not era of uh, very harsh uh, suppression of, uh, of uh, dissenters, but it was era when the whole society somewhat surrendered. Uh, and that, that is something that, is, that was important for my generation, because for my generation, the perception was that the normalization regime was the regime we were growing up in. And uh, we could not really understand uh, how come that uh, this kind of uh, soft totalitarianism, uh, how come that uh, the society can live under that. So 1989 was, uh, was a moment when my generation, at least it was our perception, uh, got rid of uh, that regime and the major event of our generation was 1989. Not only the fall of the Berlin Wall for us in Czechoslovakia, it was precondition of it. And uh, uh, psychologically speaking, when I look at it, uh, when I look at it today, it was so strange because in the late 1980s, uh, the regime was really quite mild. Of course, it was a repressive regime still. But uh, we were in a situation of a prisoner who doesn't know that the door is already unlocked, that, they, that, that we could have left the, the cell, but we didn't know that it was possible. Once we tried, the whole, the whole structure uh, went down and uh, uh, someone, someone uh, used the uh, expression that, uh, that the, the, the holders of of uh, of the power uh, ran ran out as boys who broke window so something like that was our perception at that time we didn't really perceive uh, the the major theater of the cold war of many maybe uh, behind the scenes arrangements and so on so it is my generation generational experience yeah, that's and that's a, a very very important things to put in context. As many of the listeners will not fully know, like what it, what was the normalization period, and I guess it was a time where people were getting used to this kind of uh, hypocrisy and uh, system where everybody uh, kind of knew that the, the that the media, uh, the politicians were all lying constantly and. Um, and that, uh, you know, you, you kind of lived in two, two, two realities, right? I mean, it was, it was obvious that there was constant lying. And I think a lot of people uh, can relate to that today when, uh, with, um, with events, I mean, in the U.S. and around the world with polarization. And a lot of people do perceive the media as being unreliable, and making propaganda, especially when we have polarization. But not to not to diverge too much. We can return to this maybe later. But in terms of the uh, the changes that you saw, I can imagine there was also a uh, an optimism that came out of this. And uh, was that optimism uh, un unwarranted, or was it appropriate? And was it were people prepared for uh, the changes that, that took place? 
let me maybe return to your questions. question in, in a moment. You were right when you pointed out that uh, our uh, experience here was very local. Maybe I should also add a very um, important thing that uh, since we are living in Central Europe, Uh, the, the experience of uh, people in uh, then Czechoslovakia or what is today Czech Republic or Slovakia was uh, experience of those who uh, went through the occupation by the Nazi Germany in uh, 1940s, uh, during which the, the elites of the nations were imprisoned, sometimes also uh, murdered again after 1948. We went through a kind of Soviet occupation, if one may say so. It was a, a phase of a Stalinist totalitarian regime when again the rest of the elites were imprisoned and crushed. And that's why after 1968 it was so easy for uh, the, the Soviet occupants was so easy to suppress the liberty because the society was already very tired and uh, those who would be able to resist uh, were missing or generally the, the society was very lethargic, lethargic. As for your question, I think uh, here the, the famous saying that glass can be half full or half empty is very appropriate because uh, of course, especially for very young people, Like myself, I was less than 18 in 1989. Uh, we were very optimistic. Uh, we thought that uh, now everything is going to be fine. Uh, the book by uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, about the end of history was very popular here, or at least the thesis that the history ends here because we attained the final victory of liberty. It was something that we understood very well. Um, generally, for most people, uh, there was no debate about uh, the direction because we thought that uh, socialism as an idea simply uh, failed in all aspects and that some sort of democratic capitalism equipped with a strong social state is the answer. Of course, there are many debates about uh, Uh, particular details about uh, how to do it and how to attain attain that uh, state, uh, such as questions of privatization and so on, because uh, Czechoslovakia was, uh, even among the, among the communist countries, Czechoslovakia was a country with the largest state-owned sector, almost everything was state-owned. So it was a much bigger challenge than in, for example, in Hungary or even in Poland, where they always left some sort of uh, private, uh, private uh, property or private means of production. And uh, we were very optimistic also as, for, as far as uh, the geopolitics is concerned. We, we thought that uh, Russia as the inheritor of the Soviet tradition is on its knees that uh, China is far and weak and that uh, we are uh, simply living in an era where everything would be fine forever in a way. So there was something, uh, I would say, almost religious or, uh, or eschatological in, in that. And uh, also at the same time, it was time 
when all the critical voices against that kind of uh, path, such as path to the democratic capitalism and market market economy, that these uh, critical voices were suppressed by the media, even by the society itself. So when uh, they published uh, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and when I read it, and when I read about uh, about the, the dangers of uh, of majoritarian thinking, uh, it uh, I realized that it applied to uh, Czechoslovakia of 1990s or Czech Republic after 1993, that it applied uh, to that country as well. At the same time, when I look at that uh, era, I think it was era of immense liberty, much bigger liberty than we have today. For example, it was possible in the public television to make jokes about politicians in a way that would be unthinkable today. And generally, it was time when everyone was uh, prepared or able to, to test and try everything, anything, because it was simply the mood of, of the time. So I have very good memories about it, not only because I was very young, but also because I think it was a unique, unique uh, time of, of my country. And I remember that many people who came from the West, for us, they were wealthy people, even if they were students, because uh, our economy was much weaker. But at the same time, we experienced that these people coming from the West looked at us with envy because they thought, okay, in our countries, everything is already settled and boring. And here in countries such as Czechoslovakia or other post-communist countries, it was still that part of Europe where when things were going on, when, when, when big topics were debated and when you could uh, you could form things and 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 uh, where where you, where you could feel that you are part of a big story. Uh, of course, later, maybe already in late 1990s, we came to much sober approach to ourselves because we experienced uh, some economic problems as well as uh, uh, sobering experience of uh, seeing that some people got rich some people got rich in a very problematic way and that uh, even the political parties kind of privatized the public sphere while we were enjoying our liberty and uh, this is in a way this is a state of mind that uh, is uh, current even today after another 20 years so we, we realize that uh, liberty or freedom if you like is a state of society that depends on hard work of the society. And I think today we are in, a, in another phase only in the sense that uh, the political parties or I would say structures above the political parties such as big players, uh, people who are involved in big business and so on are even more efficient in privatization of, of the public sphere and in directing the country in the directions that is that is good for them, but not necessarily for the society. These are all fascinating points, and especially this is a common theme that I've also heard in terms of this euphoria of the post uh, 1989 days. And uh, yeah, in this kind of uh, when uh, looking back in hindsight, this. Uh, Fukuyama's end of history is is seen as a bit 
uh, a bit naive and um, and yeah and what you what you talk about in terms of personal freedom is uh, something that I'm guessing many people do miss uh, these days and um, the excesses that people weren't um, you know the, the the excesses that people weren't prepared for was also is also something that uh, that is that is interesting to look at and also the fact that uh, many, at least from my observation, I see that many of the people who were uh, higher ups or people that were in the KGB uh, kind of took positions of power after. It seems like they almost knew how to uh, work even the, the democratic or capitalistic system, right? Is that something you've noticed as well? I think you are very right. I think that this, the, the reality is uh, at the same time a little bit more complicating, complicated. Uh, on the one hand, yes, people connected with uh, KGB or the Czech equivalent of it, uh, which was called STB, Státní bezpečnost, the state security, they, they were much better uh, acquainted with the ways how to get to power, how to get to uh, to private uh, privatized property and so on. So although we had very strict uh, law against uh, the former uh, STB members uh, taking part in politics, we were even criticized uh, for that uh, from uh, West European circles that they thought it was undemocratic. I think it was very naive from their side. So although we had this very strict law, of course, in in uh, the big business, these laws are not applicable, and many of these people uh, were very efficient in uh, putting their hands on the on the privatized property. And we are talking about very big uh, chunks of uh, the national e economy because almost everything was privatized. Quite part of that uh, euphoria of early nineties was conviction that uh, uh, liberal economy of uh, let's say Thatcherite style is the answer so everything should be privatized we privatized not only uh, companies producing things but also important networks such as uh, uh, water distribution and so on today we see that it was not the most reasonable approach to 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 the problem and uh, at that time, many people somewhat connected to either KGB from former Soviet Union or our STB. They were really, uh, you, while we were talking about what democracy means, they were already uh, working on their own uh, on their own businesses. But uh, generally, I think there was a very uh, important uh, layer of people who were not maybe necessarily connected to the secret police or even to the communist party but simply people who were somewhere in the in the in the gray zone uh, there is a very interesting sociological uh, investigation by uh, sociologist Ivo Mojny unfortunately he is already deceased and he uh, very soon after the 1989 he wrote a book which is called in Czech proč tak snadno why so easily what he meant by that was that it was surprisingly easy to take down the, 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 the regime, which lasted for more than 40 years. His 
his explanation was that uh, the regime, especially in the 1980s, was in fact very much dependent on people who uh, were able to uh, do kind of, let's say, quasi-capitalistic uh, way of uh, dealing with problems. And uh, they were able to get quite rich. Uh, typically, these were people who were uh, selling hard currency in the streets, which was, of course, illegal. But at the same time, it was tolerated by, by the police. These were people who were even able to uh, do the business with uh, the Western countries. They were trying to, they were successful in selling different things that were not produced here in this country, beginning with uh, the digital watches, but up to things such as personal computers and so on. And these people were very important for the regime because the economy was also important for it. It was still about the economy, even under the communism and uh, in late 90s, sorry, in late 80s, according to Ivo Mojny, the sociologist, these people came to conclusion that for them, continuation of the regime is not really uh, something they 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 wish because they, their their riches was uh, was stored in form of social capital, and they could not turn their social capital into financial capital. They couldn't really get rich in a way they would be, be able under a standard capitalist uh, economy. And these people who were so important for, uh, for, for the survival of the regime suddenly decided that it's time to, to get rid of it. And, and that, that was probably one of the factors that, uh, that uh, uh, were so important in 1989. And uh, these people, I think, are very prominent in the Czech economy until today, together with people, of course, who are uh, really connected with the STB. There is a big debate going on in this country about who our prime minister is, because our prime minister uh, was registered as not as a member of the secret police, but as a kind of agent of the secret police. He says that it, he was registered uh, unjustly that it was not uh, that it is uh, simply a lie of the STB archives. Uh, we don't know, but certainly we know that he got rich in the 1990s in a, in, in a on large scale, so to say, and that uh, we don't know exactly where his initial capital came from. He has a story about it, but we cannot be sure that this is how he says. And he, in the meantime, he became a very important player in the chemical industry and in food production industries. He's a very important uh, person in this area. In the meantime, he invested in the media. And at the same time, of course, he is also uh, prime minister of the Czech government. So these are challenges that we didn't really foresee in early 1990s. In this sense, we were very naive. And uh, I think we were not warned but even if we were warned, I think no one of us would have believed that uh, this is a possible uh, scenario of what could happen. At the same time, it seems to me that uh, it is natural that uh, the process uh, has its own problems. And when you look at uh, some other countries in Central Europe, Czech Republic is still doing quite well 
not economic, not necessarily in economic uh, way, because I think we lost our advantage to much less developed countries in 1980s. But at the same time, the, the, the democratic institutions are still much stronger in this country than, than in any other country in Central Europe today. You bring forward great points and uh, I have to say, yeah, all like relevant and that is interesting. That's something that I've always uh, found fascinating is the black market uh, during communism, what people were smuggling and also um, the, the kind of the banned books market. And do you have uh, do you have any experience with that, like in terms of uh, suppressed culture and um, books that were banned? And were you able to get your hands on that or any of the other uh, forbidden goods? Uh, generally, for an uh, uh, observer from outside, it is maybe important to stress the difference between, let's say, 1950s and 1970s. In 1950s, it was a true totalitarianism, which means that it was a regime where there was no real opposition or no real dissent possible. There were people who were against the regime at the very beginning after the introduction of the communist regime in 1984, sorry, in 1948, uh, there were some attempts at uh, military resistance, but after these uh, attempts were suppressed, no such thing as dissidents existed in 1950s. It was true totalitarianism. In 1970s, in uh, the period that is called here normalization, it, is, it means normalization of uh, state of the affairs after the Soviet invasion in 1968, it was, already possible to have a kind of uh, dissident circles. It was, let's say, one, one part of the society, a relatively small part, maybe several thousand people who were really involved in political opposition against the regime. Then you had the regime and people around it. And somewhere in between there, were, there was so-called the gray zone people who were living their own lives. Uh, they tried to raise children, have uh, interesting or good uh, jobs, and uh, maybe uh, once uh, in a while to go to the sea in Bulgaria because it was very unusual to be able to travel to the West, for example. However, the gray zone is, uh, is a term that is maybe too general and there were two uh, to islands of different thinking within the gray zone. Uh, I think the most uh, prominent uh, represent, represent, sorry, the most prominent representatives of, uh, of, of uh, non-political descent were young people who were interested in, in modern music, especially rock music. And since it was very difficult to, uh, to get to this music at that time, no internet, of course, no Amazon, of course. So it was a kind of black market for uh, rock and roll music and rock music and so on. And these people were uh, kind of non-political fighters for freedom because for them freedom means that they would be able to wear long hair, uh, wear jeans and listen to the music of their choice. 
which was not so easy and not so automatic at that time, certainly not in early 1970s. So I would say this is this was an interesting island of uh, liberty for very young people like myself. I, at that time I was a child, but in 1980s it was already possible to 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 buy different kind of musics music or LPs or uh, or cassettes that were not available on on the open market, and uh, so this was maybe my my uh, encounter with one kind of freedom. As for as for the political resistance, it was much more difficult. There were people who were in contact with uh, either dissidents or with people abroad. Uh, at the same time, you were never sure if the person who makes it possible for you to, for example, to to read a book. It was typical, for example, that someone had a book published uh, by an exile publishing house. Someone smuggled it in. And uh, typically someone could uh, offer you that over the weekend, you can you can have it and then you will return. So many people did it, but at the same time, you were never sure if this person is uh, someone who will report it to the secret police at the same time. I was too young for this, but also I encountered this kind of uh, um, this kind of uh, phenomena, uh, which means that under that regime it was already possible to 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 lead your life uh, on on let's say on your uh, private island. But at the same time, the atmosphere of this so-called normalization regime of 1970s and 80s was based on the idea that uh, they will, at the end of the day, they will anyway somewhat uh, encroach into your life. It's, you had to go to the military because in order to be able to get an apartment, you had to cooperate with the regime in order to get passport to travel somewhere. Again, you had to be nice to the regime and so on. So there was no escape in a way unless you became someone who was totally... Uh, who totally resignated on anything. So there were people who simply decided that they will lead their lives. They will not try to travel. They will not try to have good jobs. They will simply grow their long hair and listen to the music. This was, this was let's say, the most typical island of, of, of uh, non-political resistance to it. But uh, maybe what I should mention, because it is... Uh, it has something to do with uh, family of my wife. They were people who were involved in smuggling of uh, religious literature. They were not dissidents, but they were people who kind of risked uh, to, to, to be able to, to smuggle religious, mostly Christian literature into the country, which was of course illegal. And uh, again, it was necessary uh, to distribute this literature, which uh, which was also risky to some extent. But again, it was something else to do it in 1972 and it was something else to do it in 1988. Right, and that's, yeah, so that's a good context to give for the listeners and even uh, to me because, of course, I'm living here, but I'm also an outsider and I'm not uh, so familiar. And I've spoken to a couple of uh, people who were, dissidents and even refugees who left. And I spoke to um, somebody, uh, a psychologist, a psychoanalyst who recently passed away, unfortunately, Olga Marlin. And she was telling me 
uh, something similar that, you know, she was, she had left uh, Czechoslovakia uh, during like, I think it was 1968. And she was saying that indeed, like there was a big difference between those who had left, um, those who had left, uh, you know, after uh, the crackdown and those who had lived uh, and, and experienced the regime, like the early regime, like her parents, and then what happened after. But in terms of, uh, in terms of what you said, so uh, something like freedom of religion was not acceptable. So people would, would have to have like secret churches, for example, secret worship, because I know uh, some, some areas of psychology were also prohibited, uh, such as psychoanalysis. There were these kind of uh, underground psychoanalytic meetings and clubs. And so uh, was that, I mean, how encroaching was the regime on a culture like that? Because I mean, something like religion is, is, is very personal. So if you're not able to worship as you will, then I mean, that's really like trying to reshape your, your own culture. I think since the regime was uh, still, let's say, half totalitarian, there was a very fine line between, let's say, secret society or secret, secret uh, club and, and uh, simply private club. As for psychoanalysts, I can imagine that, in fact, they were organizing a private sessions. But at the same time, since they never knew who would report about it, who would be trying to um, control what they are doing, they had to make what was in fact what was in fact private. They had to make it secret at the same time. Uh, I'm not sure if it is similar when it comes to the religious life. Generally speaking, there was public religious life, especially in the second phase of uh, of the regime. Let's say in 1950s, uh, it was a little bit different, but. Generally, you were able to go to, to, to a church and to attend at, uh, at, at the service uh, quite officially. The state was paying uh, the priests, either Catholic or Protestant, or even, even uh, not necessarily Jewish rabbis, but Jewish uh, religious figures, because with rabbis it was more complicated. So it was possible to have a public, open, official religious life. The problem was if you wanted to either have a, your own uh, religious life and having a career at the same time. Because, for example, if you were 13 years old lad, you were going to the secondary school and you wanted to go to so-called gymnasium, which was, let's say, typical high school in the Czechoslovak uh, uh, environment. Once it was known about you and for everyone, there was a file where things were collected, all the, all the information was being collected. So once it was known that your family is religious and you are going to the church, to a church or something like that, your chances that you would go to the gymnasium would be much smaller. And so it made many people thinking whether they want to conduct their religious life at all or in some cases they decided to um, make their religious life private or secret. 
and uh, therefore, for example, there were secret uh, children's summer camps, which were masked as, uh, let's say, family union of a very large family, because it was, of course, illegal to have a Christian summer camp for children. But generally speaking, yes, the churches were open and everyone was free to go there. But at the same time, they had to count on what it will mean for their life uh, uh, if if it's known to to the to the uh, to, to the institutions of the state. And uh, then, of course, there were very secret uh, religious uh, religious uh, circles where they simply didn't want to cooperate with uh, the with the official church because the regime was very successful in subjugating very large part of the Catholic clergy. They were members of, uh, let's say, kind of pro-communist organization that was called Pazem Interis, Peace on Earth. And these, these people were kind of uh, fellow travelers. They were priests on the one hand, but at the same time, they were kind of fellow travelers of, of the communist regime. So for many Christians, it was uh, unacceptable to take part in the religious life organized by these people and these people uh, organized a so-called uh, hidden church. So this hidden church existed in Czechoslovakia as well. But I think for most uh, Christian believers, it was unknown or something they can could not really uh, take part in because it was too, it was too secret even for, for the other Christians. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, and I guess there's big variations in terms of um, like Czech, the Czech and the Slovakian um, uh, tradition, because I've heard that there were, uh, for instance, Slovakia, these Catholic anti-communist resistance uh, groups, if, uh, and, and also in, in other places like Poland, the church was kind of seen as a bulwark or uh, a form of resistance against this uh, totalitarian state. It is, it is very much true. Uh, let's compare uh, the Czech society and uh, the Polish society because these are two, let's say, extreme examples. The Czech society already from uh, pre-communist times uh, has been very secularized society, a very low proportion of people who visit churches who visit uh, services and who uh, lead active religious life. So it is a very secular society here in the Czech Republic. Uh, while Poland is a society that has been traditionally very religious, but it's not only a religion uh, proper, but it is also role of the church in the society, which has something to do with Polish history. While here the church was sometimes perceived as uh, part of the oppressive uh, state, even, for example, before 1918, before, uh, before Czechoslovakia was created, uh, church was considered to be part of the Habsburg uh, dynastical rule over this area. In Poland, church was something that was uniting all the Poles, because Pol was, Poland was uh, divided between three different countries, between Russia, uh, Prussia or Germany later, and uh, Austrian monarchy, Austrian empire. So for the Poles, 
the church was the thing that was uniting all the poles so even under the communist times even many communists had their children baptized for example which uh, looked uh, very absurd uh, or bizarre from the czech point of view because here the communist party was very very anti-religious and anti-church and even the society was sometimes very suspicious when it came to anything related to the to the catholic church so that was also the one of the reasons why it was so easy for for the communist state here in czechoslovakia in the czech part of czechoslovakia to 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 subjugate the church and to separate the church from from the nation it was a little bit different in moravia which is the eastern part of what is today czech republic where the society is a little bit more traditional and uh, the church played bigger role i can't say major role but bigger role in the society and certainly it is much more true in uh, slovakia where the situation would resemble to some extent the situation in poland the, that uh, being catholic and being uh, in church was some to some to some extent part of the of the of the national identity I'm Slovak, therefore I'm Catholic, something like that. And it again, it's not fully true, but uh, let's, for for the sake of the explanation, it is it is uh, the major major truth. And uh, here here it the, the the church didn't really play a very big role in uh, resistance to the communist uh, regime, with uh, let's say three exceptions in the 1950s many very important church leaders were imprisoned because they were all too popular and all too uh, they they had all too big authority in the society but it was 1950s and again the church played some role only in 1980s in late 1980s first of all after the election of the polish pope john paul ii it it really had a very big impact, not only in Poland, where it is natural, but also in other countries, countries with some Catholic tradition, such as the Czech Republic. And the third thing I should mention is also that in, uh, 19, in late 1980s, even some of the church leaders here in what is today Czech Republic began uh, more uh, courageous in resisting the, the the state and one of the one of the major phases in in uh, uh, resistance to the regime was when uh, when uh, one of the Czech medieval uh, personalities was uh, was uh, made saint and the the whole thing was very much uh, important for strengthening the Catholic, Catholic uh, part of the society against the regime, but it was, I guess, in 1988, around 1988, Aneshka Ceska, Ignace of Bohemia, was was made saint, and this also very important political role in the society. Yes, and and there's some you know there's some similarities that I hear when you're describing like the situation. Uh, I'm just thinking of the role of the Catholic Church in China and how the current Pope has made some deals which, has, which have angered various uh, Christian dissidents in China. But uh, not to get too much off topic, I would like to uh, re, uh, reconnect with the 
previous topics. So we talked a little bit about what was, you know, what was happening, the normalization period, um, this kind of uh, role that the party, this, this tyrannical ideology was uh, repressing in a way culture, but it was a kind of a soft totalitarianism. It wasn't the hardcore, you know, Stalinist uh, boot to the face type. But uh, in terms of going back, to uh, the post-1989 world, uh, there was there's a uh, colleague of mine, Martina Klitsberova, who, who did uh, various uh, research with uh, a colleague named Ivo Firebrand. And his father was actually part of the Benish government in exile. And she, she looked at uh, social psychological aspects of the, the psychology of democracy, the uh, civic duties, civic roles and norms. And she also looked at what was coined to be the post-Soviet syndrome, where you know behaviors and attitudes and norms that were uh, basically adaptive uh, in the communist time, like you know being highly paranoid or suspicious of others, and um, keeping private and this kind of it's a bit of a cynical uh, approach was kind of taken you know it was it was moved into the democratic society by a, by a pretty big portion of the people and this served as a kind of a hindrance towards like this more democratic approach so there were always and there are always these kind of skeptics that don't really believe in the democratic norms and are, you know, uh, wiggling their way or uh, thinking just about how to cheat or enrich themselves and at the expense of others. So do you know, do you, uh, have you heard of any of this or are you familiar and can you comment on some of these uh, norms that, you know, that are required for a democratic society to function, especially in this post-89 um, scenario? One of the major topic of the public debates in the 1990s was how to cope with the past in many ways. Uh, one of uh, the questions, for example, was uh, whether to uh, keep the idea that uh, the previous regime was uh, to a high extent legal in the sense that the next regime, the democratic regime, is a continuation of it, and therefore all the contracts and everything that was uh, true uh, in economy or in even in other aspects of uh, the public life, it was still valid after 1989. So uh, we opted for this continuation, illegal continuation of the most things. There were some breaches with the past in the sense that there was this so-called Lustration law, Lustrachnizakon, which prevented the former secret police members of, from it prevented them from holding public uh, public uh, offices, and also there was so-called restitution law, which uh, returned some parts of the the property owned by people before 1948 to people. It was a very imperfect law in the sense that if you owned, for example, uh, money, you, it was not returned to you. 
but if you owned uh, a house, it, the, the house was returned to you. So it was in a way uh, while trying to undo some injustices, uh, new injustices were made at the time. But at the same time, the idea was that if you can return something, you should do it because it is uh, a part of a rehabilitation of the society and rehabilitation of the idea of, of justice. And so the, the topic the topic of uh, what it means to cope with the past was, I would say, the major theme of the public debates of 1990s. And uh, I think there was a general idea that the society is corrupt, that the society is not uh, morally healthy enough to, uh, to, to, to cope with all these challenges without, uh, without uh, big mistakes. And uh, in a way later, when we uh, encountered some problems, for example, when uh, the ODS and the Social Democratic Party, which means the major right-wing party of the time and Social Democratic Party as, as the major left-wing party, they made so-called opposition agreement and in a way they they privatized the state and uh, uh, in a way they i would say they corrupted the democratic uh, system at the time already several years after after 1989 so we perceived it as far as i remember as uh, as uh, as a direct uh, uh, effect of the fact that the society was uh, corrupted during the communist uh, uh, times. Uh, part of those debates were asking uh, what it means that we returned to the liberty after 42 years of the communist uh, uh, era or even after 50 years, which were, which was the span between the, the Nazi German occupation in 1939 and 1989, the, the fall of the communist times, because it was really something that uh, touched the lives of uh, two or three generations. And sometimes we thought that if it was possible to liberalize the regime in 1968, as many people wished before uh, the Soviet invasion, it, the, the, the change in both the economy, but also in, in uh, democracy and uh, institutions of of, uh, of uh, democratic life, that it would have been much easier because those another years of this normalization regime of 1970s and 80s, this was the most devastating phase because it was much milder oppression than in 1950s, uh, not to speak of the oppression by the Nazis, but still it was all too long for the society to survive it with some healthy moral norms. So what you mentioned that uh, the society was not uh, prepared to cope with democracy or even with uh, some other moral questions such as uh, introducing just laws, uh, maybe it was really related to the fact that, uh, that uh, 1970s and 80s meant that almost everyone who lived in 1990s was a person who experienced only these non-normal times in his or her life. It was simply too long time of, of, uh, of uh, uh, not normal times. And this was, uh, this was maybe 
this was maybe also the reason why why we failed in some of the democratization efforts. At the same time, I think it's simply natural. We have to count on it. And uh, again, if you compare uh, the Czech society with some other societies in post-communist uh, world, it's a society with quite long democratic uh, and liberal tradition, which is uh, going back to 19th century. And I hope this is still the major truth when it comes to the debate about the future uh, of the Czech democracy. At the same time, currently we are in a very weird uh, phase because, as you know, uh, many very important things will have to be decided. And uh, we are quite afraid uh, what is going to be decided about them. First of all, it's uh, head of the future, future head of the, of the of the secret service or intelligence service, sorry. Uh, we are afraid that uh, the next uh, head of, the, of, of this institution will be someone who will be chosen by people around the, the president who is, uh, who is uh, criticized for being too close to Russia and China. Secondly, there is a question what is going to, do, to be done with uh, nuclear power station. Uh, it is uh, Russia who wants to build the, uh, the, the power station. Again, it is perceived by many as uh, a strategic problem if it is going to be Russia who will be chosen as, as uh, the, the supplier of the nuclear, uh, nuclear technology. Or 5G internet networks. Is it going to be Chinese company Huawei or is it going to be someone else? Again, there is a very strong uh, push for the Chinese, although uh, the intelligence service is uh, very much against it. So these things have to be will be decided within the next year. And uh, we are afraid that these things will be decided in a way that uh, would compromise the future of uh, democracy and liberty in this country. And I'm very glad that I have you on the show because usually, you know, I, I always do only psychology and you're bringing forward a different point of view a more historical based and, and uh, I guess sociological uh, perspective as well in terms of what's happening. And that's, yeah, and that is uh, very, um, very relevant. And in terms of, uh, in terms of what's happening, you bring about geopolitical uh, issues, trends about how democracy has been declining. And I would just like to mention, I mean, it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite disturbing to see uh, the trends that have been taking place all over the Western uh, world with uh, norms of democracy. And, and I, one of the things that, that disturbs me the most, for example, in the United States is the level of polarization that has occurred and this kind of this kind of not understanding that in a democratic society you have two usually two forces or like usually like a conservative and a liberal force that kind of that they're necessary to one another and that the whole point is to you know debate and talk civil civilly and uh, not hate the other side and 
because you're, you know, you're supposed to be working in a, in a, in a joint project. So that's very disturbing. There's obviously these outside influences that you mentioned from countries that are not uh, democratic. But do you think that, and, and we will close soon, but do you think that in terms of the norms, like democratic norms in general, do you see a more civil uh, political culture here in, in uh, Czech, uh, in Czech Republic compared to say the United States or, or is it also a trend that is worrying in, ter in terms of democratic uh, norms and trends? Well, I think that the United States has been a democratic country for more than two centuries. So I'm quite, uh, uh, I, I, I'm not afraid that uh, the United States will not keep its democracy. But at the same time, it's true that we were, I would say, almost amused when we were watching what's going on in America in the past several years because we grew up with the idea that we are just students of democracy, while those old democracies, such as the United States or the UK, uh, that uh, they are the masters and we are here to learn. So in a way, we are amused when we see that uh, even the old democracies, and this applies to the UK as well, make uh, a lot of uh, funny and stupid things. At the same time, I'm not sure if uh, our uh, problems are necessarily uh, related to the same roots as, uh, as the problems that uh, the Americans or the British have. Uh, maybe, yes, there are some uh, common denominators such as uh, uh, Russian interference, uh, the industrialization of, of the West, uh, general feeling of uh, weakening of the West, maybe even some other factors that are almost uh, mystical. I can't, I, I don't want to go into this, but yes, there are some common roots for both what's going in the United States and in, let's say, Eastern Europe. Uh, at the same time, I think that we are in a, a much more, more fragile situation than the United States. You can see that uh, uh, all the institutions in the US are working well when it comes to deciding about some uh, questions such as uh, voting in this or that this or that uh, state and so on. Here we are now facing different attacks against, uh, against the Senate or some other institutions, even the the, the 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 public television which is again a very important uh, uh, player in the future of the czech democracy uh, in a way when i uh, all that i said during the past uh, half an hour or one hour uh, i was uh, saying as a member of let's say the liberal democratic bubble uh, I'm part of this uh, very white uh, society of people who think that liberal democracy is uh, the thing that we want. At the same time, and now I'm returning to your to your area of psychology, I'm uh, perplexed by uh, some phenomena that I see around myself, such as nostalgia for times uh, when things were clear-cut, black and white, uh, even people I, who I remember were welcoming return of democracy in the uh, late 1980s, 
especially people of uh, the generation of my parents are suddenly become uh, people who are very not only anti-democratic or have some big problems with the idea of democracy, but also they are very anti-Western. They have so much empathy for Russia or China and uh, generally are, uh, in, uh, it seems to me that they are really on, 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 uh, uh, tuned to very different uh, wave than I am or people like, like I am. So something happened in, in, in this country and in many other post-communist countries where people are uh, giving up on democracy uh, and uh, uh, they, they opt for other ideas, maybe for some kind of nationalism or for some kind of anti-Western emotions. That is something that maybe goes very deep into the psyche of, of those nations. But at the same time, for example, we see it even in Eastern Germany, where people are in the, the economically they are okay, I guess, and yet uh, for for those who were growing under the communist regimes, it is uh, it is very different, difficult for them thirty years later to uh, to uh, accept everything they 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 see in the West. And uh, that is maybe bringing me to something that I should have mentioned and I did not mention it during uh, what I was uh, speaking about. I was speaking about the regime and, and the people, but it is not really a true picture of the, of, of, of the reality because uh, it, the, this clear-cut division between the regime or the communist party and, and the rest of the, of the society it's it's not so easy. Uh, for example, in 1989, I think it was 1.5 or 1.6 million people who were members of the Communist Party in 1989, which means it was more than 10% of all people, not of adult people, but every every tenth person, maybe every eighth person in the Czechoslovak. Uh, society were members of the communist party so we were all of us we were somewhat uh, made part of the of the regime at the same time and this i am afraid left some very problematic traces on our collective uh, psyche because uh, we were our own prisoners and this is something that uh, will probably not disappear not even the future uh, 10 or 20 years, I think it will disappear within 100 years. So in 100 years, we can make another session with you, Simon, and we can uh, see if uh, things uh, got better in the meantime. Yeah, definitely. If uh, We will see if our consciousness will not be, you know, will be downloaded into some kind of uh, computer and then we will uh, broadcast to the other E souls and uh, and see how our democracy is working in the new world. But um, Jan, I you know I want to. Uh, I know we we uh, agreed for an hour, and I would really uh, like to continue this conversation in the future because there's a lot of uh, things that I would like to touch upon that we didn't talk about today. Uh, in terms of uh, ex your experiences and uh, just general trends. But I greatly appreciate uh, you coming 
on. And uh, yes, it was it was a pleasure. And I hope to do this uh, sometime again. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, good luck. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.